The Dry Cleaner Cast presents Need to Know. Need to Know is a podcast featuring conversations with security experts focused on the terrorism and intelligence stories dominating the headlines. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. This is Need to Know. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this month's Need to Know. I'm joined by author Ian Ballantyne, and we're going to discuss the ongoing situation in the South China Seas, which has been uh, sadly heating up for a little while. But before we begin, I just want to wish everybody, it's probably a bit late to say this, but I want to wish everybody a happy new year. I hope you all had a fantastic kind of Christmas break and uh, you're rested and uh, ready to take on 2019. So uh, that's enough of me rambling on. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I think uh, I learned a lot from it and I hope you do too. And uh, we'll be back in a few weeks time with our next episode. So thank you very much for listening and uh, take care and speak to you soon. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Ian, welcome back to Need to Know. Hello, how are you? Good, good. How are you doing? You all right? Yeah. Good, good, good. For the benefit of new listeners, could you just tell us a bit about yourself? Um, I uh, edit a naval news magazine that's uh, published in the UK but read around the world called uh, Warships International Fleet Review, which looks at uh, naval geopolitics and also some naval history as well. And I write uh, naval history books, including um, a recent history of submarine warfare, called The Deadly Trade. And that also includes uh, modern events as well, because submarine warfare is still fairly active. Indeed, indeed. Well, look, today we're going to discuss the much-disputed South China Seas that appear to be heating up a little bit at the moment. Um, Ian, can you just give us an overview as to why the South China Seas are so kind of contentious? The area has been heating up for a while. It's been simmering for a long, long time. And I think it's just been a case of the... People's Liberation Army Navy, which is China's uh, fleet, or rather fleets, um, growing in size and capabilities to the point where they think they can challenge uh, anybody like the US Navy or, or even the Royal Navy from sailing in areas that they think should traditionally be uh, Chinese sovereign waters. And that basically includes the entire South China Sea. And to reinforce that, the Chinese have um, against international law, taken over small islands and reefs in the South China Sea and made them into quite uh, substantial uh, military and naval bases with airfields and facilities for basing missiles and also hosting warships. So there's a major, major um, area of tension shaping up there because the US Navy, along with the Royal Navy and Japanese Navy, are determined to show that those waters are international waters and that they can't be claimed as sovereign waters by China. And is that what this sort of dispute's about, is about the sovereignty of the waters? Yeah, the uh, the US Navy, for example, um, has regularly mounted what it calls freedom of navigation patrols to show that um, it's, it's up to anybody to sail wherever they like in certain waters that are close to these uh, reefs, fortified reefs and islands, 
and the Chinese don't like it. But the U.S. Navy says, well, under international law, these are international waters. But things are getting very, very tense. And recently there was almost a collision between a U.S. Navy destroyer called the Decatur and a Chinese destroyer. And that was uh, quite close to uh, some of these islands and reefs. And that was a very dangerous incident. Yeah, no, I bet. I mean, yeah, ships colliding with each other in the middle of the sea is not a, not a good thing. Mm. So, <laughs> um, and why, why is this region really worth arguing over? I think uh, one reason is um, that there's loads and loads of uh, natural resources uh, under the seabed in the South China Sea. And in fact, China disputes lots of areas with Vietnam and also other other nation states in the region, such as the Philippines, because, of course, they want to exploit the natural resources too, and they are worried about China's encroachment in these zones, which until recently had been uh, up up for debate, you know, who owned them. But China has decided to lay down a marker and say, actually, we own them. And I think another reason that these seas are crucial to China is that as it expands its navy, and in particular creates a larger submarine force, including better ballistic missile submarines, nuclear-powered and carrying nuclear missile submarines. It wants somewhere to hide them because the uh, part of the intention of of making these fortified reefs and islands is to put uh, sensors aboard, or rather stations for monitoring sensors, within a kind of ring of islands in the South China Sea where they can hide their ballistic missile submarines. And if any U.S. Navy submarines or even British submarines go in there to try and trail China's nuclear missile submarines, then, of course, they'll be easier to detect because they will be within what China wants to call the undersea Great War of China. And so there's a, there's a strategic game going on there as well. And um, so, in a sense, these nuclear submarines, I mean, do they, are they there to, I mean, are they there to sort of threaten the West and just become a, a, a sort of turn this area into kind of a no-go zone for Western interests? They're not there to threaten the West any more than uh, the West's uh, ballistic missile submarines. Uh, the US Navy's a higher class than the Royal Navy's Trident-class uh, submarine. Uh, sorry, um, Vanguard-class Trident submarines, or, or the, even the French Navy's uh, nuclear submarines uh, with uh, nuclear weapons do. You know, they don't threaten us any more than we might be considered to threaten them with our ballistic missile submarines. China sees um, acquiring an effective at-sea deterrent uh, as part of its um, right as a, as a superpower, just like it has explored space and put um, you know, a robot on the moon. It, it's aiming to be you know, a top-tier superpower, uh, an economic superpower and a military one. So having nuclear missile submarines as a deterrent against enemy trying to push it around is all part of that, you know just as it's part of America's stance, and also Russia's. Yeah, yeah, we certainly, there's a lot of stories of uh, the US Navy and Russia having sort of flybys and all sorts of stuff yeah, going on yeah, as yeah. well. But the, inter- the interesting thing is that uh, during the latter part of the Cold War, uh, the Soviets decided they would create what they called bastions in the Arctic, mm. which meant that they could send their northern fleet nuclear missile submarines out from the Kola Peninsula and from the White Sea to hide under the Arctic ice and with the range they had on their missiles by then, they could fire from under the ice in safe under the polar ice cap and hit targets in Britain or Western Europe or in the USA. And what the Chinese are doing is following a similar bastion um, strategy, clearly. And they're going to stick 
their ballistic missile submarines somewhere in the South China Sea, mm. and then they're going to protect them with the, their version of SOSUS, which is an underwater sound uh, system, a sonar system, powerful means of detecting submarines if they stray into China's um, bastion. And did China have an interest in the Arctic? I noticed recently um, there was a, a large expedition out there. Yeah, the Chinese are going to come over the top as the northern route uh, thaws even more, and um, I'm sure they, they will exert uh, a conventional surface naval presence and possibly send conventional or, or nuclear-powered attack submarines out into the Atlantic, into the Arctic, wherever they want to go. Because um, only recently, they have, for the first time, sent simultaneous task groups into the Black Sea, the Mediterranean, and also into the Baltic. So, you know, they, they're showing that um, in seas far from China's uh, front yard mm. that are considered international waters, they will go where they like and do what they want and won't expect to be opposed uh, by anyone. But uh, it seems in the South China Sea, they don't agree the same rules apply. And that's something that's been highlighted by uh, Rear Admiral Chris Parry, uh, a notable expert on such matters who writes for my magazine and, and has, has compared China's um, efforts in the South China Sea to a land grab, mm. seeking to treat the sea like land and say, look, we've laid down a marker here and you cannot stray onto our land or rather into our seas. So they seem to be doing one thing in seas of China and expecting they should have complete freedom somewhere else, which, of course, is perfectly OK, because if international waters are there, then you can put warships in them. Mm. And with the, with the South China Sea, so what is the kind of current naval situation in that area? Who, who, who are the kind of key players at the moment and what sort of what kind of hardware is in that area? The key players uh, or key players is bound to be the US Navy because of its uh, predominant uh, conventional power expressed via mm. um, numbers of uh, destroyers and um, also aircraft carriers, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, one of which is always forward-based in Japan. And they have bases at Guam, Japan, Okinawa. You know, they have thousands of Marines, dozens of ships, and have for decades been the guarantors of Pax Americana. Uh, so China, though, is building dozens of destroyers, is, has got an aircraft carrier program, and is, is building a very impressive navy to challenge that naval supremacy. And then I would say the other leading players are the Japanese Navy, or as it calls itself, the Japan Maritime Self-Defense Force, the Korean Navy, and the Royal Navy is, is going to be exerting, and is already exerting, a more um, high-profile presence there, and is expected to send its new aircraft carriers into the South China Sea to conduct joint operations, patrols, with um, the U.S. Navy, the Japanese Navy, and other allied navies such as the Australians. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, again, like the NATO countries are going to be drawn into this, aren't they? I, I would say that um, NATO, in a limited extent, uh, to a limited extent, I think that if you look at the recent uh, moves, the, uh, the Japanese Navy, the Royal Navy, and the U.S. Navy have established um, a trilateral agreement mm. to patrol the South China Sea. And some of that's already been enacted with uh, a frigate uh, already out there on a regular basis to work with the Americans and the Japanese to do that. And then, of course, Australia has interests. But you mustn't forget the considerable navies of uh, Japan and South Korea and also, of course, um, the uh, Singaporeans and other countries like Malaysia. Uh, they, they have naval power and they want to patrol seas for their own interests. And also, of course, the Indian Navy is a growing force. 
and it's keeping a wary eye on the Chinese in the Indian Ocean. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the potential for something to go wrong is quite high, isn't it? Yes, it is, and it's, it's growing. And it's uh, there are there are major efforts between the heads of uh, the Chinese Navy and the U.S. Navy, and in fact within the past few weeks there's been a high-level meeting between the two of them to try and make sure uh, that when their, their warships come in close contact, such as happened so recently where there was nearly that collision, mm. that there's understood uh, ways of conducting themselves, even when there's tension and there seems to be this idea that uh, the U.S. Navy ship shouldn't be there and the Chinese must chase it away, that even though it's, it is a confrontation of kinds, of a kind, that there shouldn't be a coming together and actually it shouldn't lead to to opening fire. So there are moves to make sure that uh, tensions are decreased and that when ships of the navies meet in the South China Sea that they follow a code of conduct that, are, uh, you know, avoids a clash of arms or even a collision. Yeah, that code of conduct is only good if people actually follow it, though, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, what you're seeing is similar similar actions as happened during the Cold War in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic and elsewhere where the Soviet Navy's surface forces and also submarines came into close contact with their equivalents. And sometimes there were collisions under the sea, uh, some of which are not even acknowledged to this day, and also um, more obvious collisions between surface vessels. So they happened during the Cold War and uh, it didn't uh, turn into open combat. So we have to pray that with this new tension in the South China Sea and elsewhere uh, between the navies of the West and Russia, for example, that it doesn't result in anything that turns out to be quite nasty. Mm. Now, there have been a few recent developments over the last few months and some things have been ongoing. Um, and I suppose they're going to go through a few of them just because they're quite interesting kind of topics discussed. So um, can you just talk to us a little bit about these sort of islands that China have been sort of slowly building in the in the region? But in, in general, across, across the whole disputed zone, uh, over the past few years, China has uh, occupied uh, reefs and also small islands, particularly in the Paracels, mm. where it has um, created fortified outposts, uh, which are very big, uh, and very ambitious in their ability to host uh, aircraft, missile systems, and also as a base for warships and also troops. And they've created um, lots of those in disputed areas. And for example, in the Paracels, You've got Vietnam and Taiwan who also claim rights to the paracels, particularly for the natural resources underneath them. And um, the Chinese have said, no, we're having them. And, um, for example, uh, they, they've decided that they will extend this ring of forts or island fortresses out for hundreds of miles beyond uh, China's uh, shores. So that, uh, the paracels are a real key area where there's potentially a flashpoint. Uh, especially when, um, uh, for example, uh, a, a senior f f um, source in China suggests that one way to make sure that the Americans are not such a problem is to sink one of their aircraft carriers. Yes, we'll go into that in a moment. Just, just to quickly back on these islands, am I? You may have just said it, but am I right in understanding that creates a kind of uh, a sovereign area because there's this island, so you've got like a five or seven mile exclusion from that land? Is that right? Yeah, I would say it goes out probably further than that. It probably goes out uh, a lot further. Than, it probably goes out to twelve or twenty miles, and the Chinese will say that that's not only a sea exclusion zone, it's also an air exclusion zone. So if the Americans send in a, uh, a maritime patrol aircraft or the Japanese or someone else, 
there will be fighter jets sent up from one of these uh, island or reef bases to see them off and to tell them in aggressive terms you're in Chinese sovereign airspace or if a warship is sent out you're in Chinese sovereign seas, please leave immediately. And uh, so um, they perhaps are not as polite as that all the time, but they certainly see these areas a bit like ink spots. You put down an island or a reef and, you know, an ink blotch and um, it's sort of China's territorial uh, rights kind of spread out from it and therefore yeah. pe- other people are not allowed in. That's quite that's quite clever and sneaky in a way, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean... <laughs> yeah, they built a few uh, yeah. of these. <laughs> yeah, they've been told by an international tribunal that what they're doing is against international law, but China doesn't care because it does see the South China Sea as uh, a sovereign ocean, a Mare Nostrum, that should never have been um, intruded upon by the, by outside people. Mm. So it, it claims the whole South China Sea. Yeah, wow. Now, um, there was a recent article about China's one-stop ship killer, which is actually in your Warships magazine. Um, can you tell us a bit about this? China is developing weaponry uh, like crew, uh, anti-ship cruise missiles, and of mm. course, uh, for a long time, anti-ship ballistic missiles. And the aim is to hit an American warship and destroy it with one shot and make it so fast and devastating uh, that it cannot avoid it. And the ballistic missiles that they're developing, it was the DF-21 and there's a new one called the DF-26. They're meant to Mm. be able to uh, be fired uh, multiple um, uh, multiples in, sorry, the DF-26 is meant to be fired in multiples and to hit an aircraft carrier and take it out with one blow. Um, so that's something they've been working on a long time. Yeah. Uh, people point out that obviously an aircraft carrier moves, and it might be hard to target it and hit it if you don't have uh, the right uh, intelligence information via satellite targeting information mm. to actually get it right on the point, right on point. But I suppose if a, a, a fusillade of ballistic missiles are fired at an area, then it'll be a lot harder for an aircraft carrier to avoid them. So this is yeah. this is big end, high end weaponry that China's working on. And I remember when the um, the Royal Navy's new aircraft carrier, um, one of the criticisms with building such an aircraft carrier is because aircraft uh, is perceived that aircraft carriers are more vulnerable to missile attacks. But um, am I right? At least with the American Navy, I'm not so sure about the Royal Navy. There's a sort of support network that goes around an aircraft carrier, so they're never on their own in the sea, are they? No, no. I mean, it would be the same and will be the same with the Royal Navy's aircraft carriers. Mm. They will, uh, they'll never go anywhere without a layered defence. And part of that layered defence will be provided, for example, by Royal Navy warships, and part will be provided by uh, the US Navy, and that will be very important. And also in future, future years, the Australian Navy. Because mm. the Australian Navy is buying the Type 26 frigate design and will build it in Australia, but it, it is going to have a more sophisticated um, specialised uh, anti-air system than perhaps the Type 26 of the Royal Navy, which will be anti-submarine. So you could you could see that the Australians will commit their specialised air defence destroyers, such as um, the new Type 26, their variant, and and also um, other vessels that they've got that can do different jobs, along with the Royal Navy's anti-submarine and air defence destroyers in a, in a coordinated task group. And they would all work with the US Navy's um, destroyers and cruisers to give any carrier a layered defence. And, and another key aspect of the future carriers of the US Navy and the Royal Navy is that with the F-35, mm. uh, they can send an F-35 up and it can control a swarm of drones at a long distance that can go in 
and do the actual uh, attacking. So the idea is to mm. keep the carriers back as far as you can um, from potential attack. And I suppose that's why the Chinese are developing uh, anti-ship ballistic missiles, because they want a very long reach. So it's, it's very heavy stuff and very complex. And uh, I shouldn't think that anybody would ever send the new Royal Navy aircraft carriers anywhere uh, like a high threat zone in the South China Sea without masses of uh, protection. Yeah, because that could be uh, yeah catastrophic, really. Totally, you know, one 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 carrier song is a lot of people killed. Yeah, and a devastating blow to any nation. Yeah, definitely. Because how many people are roughly on these aircraft carriers? On the Royal Navy's new aircraft carriers, you're probably talking a thousand plus. Mm. You know, because it includes the air wing and the crew of the ship. Uh, but the U.S. Navy's are two or three thousand, I would say, per ship at least. So um, you know, you're talking a lot of people at sea at any one time. And then, of course, in, in a cruiser, you've got two or 300 if it's an American one. In a Royal Navy frigate, you'll have 120, 30 people yeah. and a destroyer as well. So when you put a task group to sea, depending on how many ships you've got and which nation it comes from, you'll have several thousand people, if not tens of thousands of people, if it's a, a big task force who are actually at sea. Um, and the same will apply to China's um, Navy. Yeah, and this one-shot ship killer, there was a recent article um, where basically it's said that China's setting the stage for a bloody-nose attack on US aircraft carriers. Yeah. So they, you know, there is this intention and this sort of, sub, this sort of threat that they are going to use this, isn't there? It's always very difficult to um, deal with statements um, or claims like that because to actually commit an attack like that... Um, it's such an escalation into a very dangerous area mm. that um, it would have terrible, serious consequences, not just in seas around China and um, Indo-Asia Pacific, but also for the world. Can you imagine the impact on the global economy of a major naval war um, in the South China Sea? It would be immense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, th that may be what certain people are saying uh, in China, just as you might get some bullish people in America saying we've got to take these people on. But what you have to hope is that there's lots of diplomacy going on behind the scenes and that the heads of uh, the US Navy and the uh, Chinese Navy, as they have done recently, have a meeting where they kind of lay down an understanding of what the reality is. Because I don't think either Navy really wants to actually go to war. I think that both navies are there just to safeguard national interests, whether they're economic yeah. or, or diplomatic. Yeah, no, definitely. One would hope that's the case. The only thing, um, I suppose, that comes up as still a point of concern is Taiwan. Um, and in January, the Chinese president gave a speech where he urged the people of Taiwan to accept that it will be reunited with China. And that's yeah. led to then China conducting yeah. more drills with the yeah. idea to fend off a Chinese invasion. So do you think it's going to be the Taiwan card that might sort of... Um, tip this sort of over well that's the great danger with uh with all these countries uh wherever they are around the world now involved in two things which is state versus state power games um and also building up their their military in particular their navies because often it's the naval um fault line that is the most dangerous one because that's where fully armed and fully capable uh, military units come face to face with each other and at any moment mm. it could actually tip over into conflict but with taiwan that's a long stated aim of china to reunite this uh, rebel area with uh, the rest of china so they are pursuing a long-held strategy there and in fact 
it was uh, in the 1990s that the Americans sent an aircraft carrier to sail through the Taiwan Strait when China was making um, militaristic um, moves against Taiwan uh, to just mm. basically warn it in a, in a previous time that it could take it back whenever it wanted. And that was and it was the sending of that aircraft carrier through the Taiwan Strait in the 90s that, um, that persuaded the Chinese to stand down. Well, of course, the Chinese uh, have now got three, uh, well, one aircraft carrier in service, which is a training aircraft carrier, mm. a second one about to enter service, and are building a third one. So And they have sailed their, their aircraft carrier uh, through the Taiwan Strait now. So they're undoubtedly serious about reunification. And it just uh, is in the minds of the rest of the world, will they ever really take that step? Uh, they might, they might not, but it's, it's certainly a dangerous flashpoint. And who knows, there could be a, ca- a miscalculation if the Chinese mm. think they can uh, do it and um, reunite Taiwan with the rest of China. And they don't think the Americans or anyone else is going to oppose it. Uh, but it's certainly a dangerous area and continues to be a potential uh, conflict zone. Yeah, I mean, traditionally, America would have stood up for Taiwan, but I suppose um, in the age of Trump, it's now difficult to tell what's going to happen, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think they will stand up for Taiwan. Mm. I think that you can't doubt that they will do that because that right of self-determination is something that has to be safeguarded uh, because once you give up on that, then, you know, all bets are off. I mean, that's why Britain went to war in in the Falklands in 1982 for that principle of self-determination and uh, pulled it off against the odds, you know, when even many in Britain didn't think it should be done. So when when times of uncertainty crop up, like in Britain in 1982, when John Knott was going to get rid of most of the Royal Navy, uh, then, of course, people think they're being sent a signal that they can do things. So I think we'd have to worry when uh, there is actually a retreat from uh, Indo-Asia-Pacific, when the U.S. Navy pulls its carriers out of um, being forward based there when the U.S. Marines leave Okinawa and Guam is, you know, stood down or whatever. You know, we'd have to worry then. But I, I think, you know, the U.S. military is uh, run by pretty sensible people who will always say uh, to power what is advisable if we want to keep the peaceful world order. So I think they would at the moment certainly still stand by their allies around the world, and that includes Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, one would hope so. Yeah. Is there is there a non-military solution to these disputes, do you think, in this region? Uh, yeah, there's also a non-military solution. It's whether or not the, uh, the nations involved understand that they shouldn't go uh, for their weapons, you know, because uh, uh, that has always been the danger mm. in any crisis zone around the world. There's, there is, of course, a non-military solution. But the problem is... With the with the reefs and the islands in the South China Sea, although an international court in The Hague, I believe it was in The Hague, has said that it's actually against international law and China should not do it, it's just carrying on. So in the end, you know, there are, there are people who eventually, who maybe um, reach for the, uh, the military solution, but there's always a non-military solution. But I think actually uh, China's militarization uh, of the South China Sea, I think in many ways it's a done deal. It's done. It's happened. They've done it. So the only way you're going to change that situation on the ground to look at the South China Sea, as the Chinese do, as a kind of a land grab, is maybe a military force. So now we have to kind of negotiate with China about allowing passage of vessels, free passage of vessels through there, and also watch out for them trying to um, land grab, inverted commas, 
um, elsewhere. And the same applies to Russia. I'm going to do a bit of shameless self-publicity here. We published go for a, it, go for it. <laughs> we published a thing last year called The Guide to the U.S. Navy, at the end of last year, called The Guide to the U.S. Navy 2019. And we had various essays looking at uh, Amer- the American fleet and how it deals with the Chinese threat or the Russian threat. And um, mm. Rear Admiral Chris Parry, to quote him again, because he did an essay in there, pointed out that, of course, you know, China's actions in the South China Sea, and this is a fairly well-recognized fact um, beyond what we might say in any publications we do, uh, the Chinese actions in the South China Sea uh, will embolden Russia to regard the Arctic Mm. and other zones um, as its own area. And you can see the tensions with the Black Sea fleet and uh, other Russian military forces Mm. in the Black Sea uh, seeing off... um, what they would see as intruding navies and military forces close to their coast there, and actually, in a way, annexing the Sea of Azov recently. So the great fear has to be that they'll do that in the Arctic, because they do have claims up there. And we'll have another another um, very dangerous zone of uh, new tension up there. In fact, it's old tension revived. So if, if China shows how to do it at sea, in the South China Sea, uh, then, of course, Russia... Uh, is bound to be looking at how to shore up its uh, its claims in the Arctic and the high north and to see off um, other people such as Canada or you know Greenland, Denmark, Norway, who think they also have interest there. Is America being seen as a bit of a paper tiger and now countries are kind of thinking that they could just get away with stuff now? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think militarily um, that America is seen as a paper tiger at all. It is still the most powerful military force on the planet conventionally. It also has nuclear weapons, as do others, of course. Uh, I think there's just uncertainty and confusion about, for example, you know, Jim Mattis, nobody would ever think that he would ever um, quail to support a NATO alliance member or stand up for Taiwan or Japan or anybody else Mm. around the world. And so when he was Secretary of State uh, for Defence, then, of course, uh, there was a lot more confidence in what actually might happen in any crisis. Uh, I don't think the power of the U.S. military is seen as being weak at all. It is, is immensely strong, uh, but I think it's the political will and the diplomatic power that is doubted maybe in some areas. And, of course, we've had evidence uh, with the uh, order to withdraw from Syria. Um, but, you know, what the reality is, I think we're all confused about, because one minute President Trump saying we'll do this thing, and then the next minute he's saying we'll do another thing. So without people like James Mattis with a steady hand on the helm at the Department of Defence, there are anxieties. But of course, there's a new Secretary of Defence, and we'll have to see what he does. Yeah, and on top of that, America at the moment, um, their State Department's much weaker than it used to be. So there's a lot less of, um, I don't know, is there a lot less diplomacy going on? A lot less of um, kind of experienced players in the diplomatic field at the moment? I I mean, that's not an area where I'm a specialist, but I mean, I would say that, um, you know... uh, there are probably um, as many experienced people out there uh, ready to do a good job, but it's whether or not they get to to um, spearhead what's going going on. So you know, um, <laughs> we're in very uncertain times, you know, across the world. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast.
you have any sort of thoughts on what to watch out for um, from a naval perspective over the year ahead? I would say that um, in terms of the navies, it'll be much the same as it had been before. You know, NATO will do rehearsals, Russia will do mm. um, deployments. Uh, there'll be tension in the Mediterranean due to Russia's involvement in Syria and NATO keeping an eye on it. There'll be, uh, I think, increased operations by the Americans in the Arctic and Russia will seek to show it can also deploy forces there. We'll have the South China Sea, uh, the Indian Ocean. I think all the all the zones where there's increasing naval activity and increasing potential tension uh, will carry on, much as they have done for quite a long time. But because of the growing um, tension in the world, of course, they're coming to greater focus. I mean, North Korea, somewhere that gain attention this year because there are there is a a regime of of embargo in place against North Korea to cut it off from anything that would help fuel its nuclear program and there's soon to be a meeting between um, the leader of North Korea and President Trump to discuss where next for the disarmament or sorry the nuclear disarmament in the uh, Korean Peninsula. So uh, it's clear that the North Koreans are trying to get them to loosen the uh, the restrictions. Yeah. And of course, navies are currently enforcing those restrictions. So it could be that either those operations will be maintained or increased, or they might actually be wound down a little bit. So that, that's also another area of tension out in Indo-Asia Pacific that perhaps we haven't discussed. Yeah, it's true. It isn't. And um, well, Are there any thoughts you have on, on that area that you want to elaborate on? Well, I think that it would be unwise to relax the naval operations that are, in essence, uh, clamping down on North Korea's ability to get materials to feed its nuclear program. I think that would be an unwise thing to do. Uh, it's UN authorized. In fact, the Royal Navy and uh, the US Navy and the Japanese Navy and others are actively enforcing those things right now. And so it would be very unwise while you're talking to um, the leader of North Korea about um, about denuclearization to say, actually, we're going to we're going to let off, uh, let you off having those restrictions before we've actually achieved it. I think they should keep the pressure on. And I think uh, that would be the wise thing to do. But you never know. It might be that President Trump decides um, he, he will go along with his best new friend and um, and say, let's loosen the restrictions. Yeah, I mean, I, have, I don't know if this is falls into your area, so if it doesn't, let me know. But um, have you seen any evidence of... Uh, sort of North Korea really doing anything significant towards disarmament? It isn't an area of my specialisation. I mean, I can say that they, you know, they maintain capabilities at sea. They do definitely maintain mm. capabilities at sea uh, in terms of um, developing or trying to develop a nuclear missile submarine, which is not getting very far, but they are trying to do that. And they have lots of small submarines that can create a lot of trouble. Uh, but they're generally their navy's uh, quite old. Um, and uh, but it could still, as was proved in 2010, when a North Korean uh, mini submarine sank a South Korean corvette, they could still cause trouble. So mm. I think that um, should uh, Kim Jong Un decide that he's had enough and that he wants to put pressure on, he might adopt slightly covert measures such as sending mini submarines out to menace the uh, the warships, enforcing the embargoes on him. Uh, but I mean, I'm not I'm not an expert on. Um, on the strategic side of uh, North Korea's missile systems, other than that one attempt to get the ballistic missile submarine 
operating, which I know a little bit about. Mm. And what is their ambition with ballistic missile submarines? They did get some second-hand um, new, uh, sorry, diesel submarines that are uh, mm. capable of hosting ballistic missiles at the end of the Cold War or after the Cold War, and they tried to convert them. But they have been uh, trying to create um, a new submarine, but, but which is still diesel therefore it's not ideal to put a, a ballistic missile in because it has to mm. surface um to get uh fresh air to power its generators to to charge the battery and it has to expel fumes every now and again so it can't stay hidden mm. um all the time and so that's a very flawed route to go down and they have they have developed um this vessel and it has been observed by satellite photography um you know uh, but where they're getting with it i don't know you know it's called the sinpo and uh you know whether or not it'll ever yeah it'll ever conduct a patrol we don't know it has been sent out but what the status is of it we don't know yeah and it, and, and so their ambition in a sense they would like a nuclear capable submarine that they could deploy that in a sense could target you know hostile countries yeah, that that is. I mean, like a lot of these things, um, including you know, other nations' stated wonder weapons, they want to, they want to create uh, a fear or a, yeah. a, an anxiety in the mind of potential opponents that they're not just a threat in terms of uh, land-based uh, ballistic missiles that they could fire over Japan or America, but they can also hide something under the sea that they could then be sent out wherever to hide and wait to strike Hawaii or Guam. Uh, but I think if you're going to put with limited resources to do it if you're going to put ballistic missiles into diesel submarines then that's not going to be a credible uh, deterrent or something that would survive long if it went out and did anything menacing because it would be quite easily detected and then sunk so i think it's just another level of um, psychological pressure on um, on the west or the international community that is um, being applied by Kim Jong-un. Yeah, sort of a tactic. One last thing, sorry, um, going a bit off script, but um, I, I was reading recently that Russia claimed to have created some new submarine detection system. The, the, one of the most effective things that was ever invented and um, used by NATO during the Cold War was SOSUS, you know, uh, because what that did was uh, that created a network of um, underwater sensors or seabed sensors um, mm. that could detect Russian submarines, Soviet submarines, from hundreds, if not thousands, of miles away. And uh, there was nowhere that they could go virtually where they could remain uh, undetected by sound surveillance underwater systems. But that, that network um, is you know, made up of passive sea, seabed hydrophones. So that was very active during the Cold War. And uh, that's the sort of thing China's trying to create in the South China Sea. So if the Russians were trying to create their own sauces that could girdle the world, then that would hear virtually everything. The thing about all of this, um, and the Americans are working on uh, what you might call robo-corvettes, uh, robotic uh, surface vessels that will go out and um, try to uh, hunt down submarines in the ocean. The thing is, when you, when you create a vessel that has all these things like towed array sonar, uh, an ability to uh, destroy things with a weapon, and it needs a nuclear reactor, and needs to go out for a long time, and then, of course, act under the orders of some commander, because you can't have these things wandering around just blowing up ships willy-nilly, mm. then you might as well create a new manned submarine, you know, a new yeah. submarine with, uh, with, with a crew. 
so it gets to the point where you've made this thing so big and so complex that you might as well just develop a new generation of hunter-killer submarine or ballistic missile submarine. Uh, unless, of course, what you've got is something more limited, which is a drone, a mother submarine can send out just to detect something or that um, can destroy something. But, of course, sophisticated torpedoes now are basically drones themselves, so that we've already got those. And certainly drones and undersea and surface robot warfare at sea will happen and is coming. But how soon, you know, we can't predict. You know, it could be a few years or it could be decades. It's hard to know especially when it comes to the Russians, mm. if what they're talking about is still in early development and has been proven and has the, the, the bugs ironed out of it, um, or if it's an ambition for the future. Because, of course, again, there's an element of, of uh, President Putin and others trying to psychologically uh, dominate the West by announcing wonderful new capabilities. Yeah, no, exactly. So there's a new weapon system that's come up called Black Scorpion. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about this? Black Scorpion is a new... Um, Five-inch diameter torpedo, a very tiny uh, torpedo compared to the bigger ones that are 21-inch or 18-inch of the past and the present. And it's a lightweight torpedo, which means that uh, it can be carried by an aircraft or put in a drone uh, to be launched by them or on a ship and uh, smaller surface vessels. And it's meant to be fired off there, probably quite a number of them at any one time to attack uh, targets, whether they're under the sea or on the surface. I mean, it's in development at the moment. It's probably an anti-submarine mm. weapon, I, I would think. <clears throat> and, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know what the precise details of its, of its effectiveness are because it's in development, but it is quite, quite something for um, a company um, to go down the route of developing mm. such a small torpedo. And it, it must imply that they want to look at arming drones basically and giving also aircraft and helicopters a wider spread uh, in terms of potential for damage to targets or even destruction so um, that's in development at the moment so it's not only russia that's developing these kind of radical weapons Mm. Um, and um, leonardo which is an italian stroke european company Mm. um, and is developing that and uh, we we'll have to see what, what they produce. But I think in the West, it's uh, driven by what navies need and commercial mm. necessity um, rather than used as an overt mm. propaganda tool to uh, cow potential opponents, which is how the Kremlin uses news of new capabilities. But certainly um, we shouldn't dismiss developments in the West because where the Russians are trying revolutionary new ideas, I think people in the West are too. Mm. Mm, and also they're not always going to tell us about them are they no no i mean um you know when when uh, vladimir putin makes one of his big uh, speeches in moscow it is a definite effort to list ways in which they're working on stuff to terrify the west and whether or not they all turn out to be um effective or go into service um we don't know you know we won't know for some time and they may never uh, mature into something that is a serious capability but certainly it's all part of uh, the mind games uh, that some nations play in order to dominate the psychology of a potential opponent and deter them from trying anything that would uh, harm 
in this case, Russia's interests. Yeah. Now, one question I forgot to ask you earlier was about the importance of military exercises, because some people criticise them as warmongering, and certainly North Korea, who is sometimes the focus of military exercises, like to say that they're warmongering. But there's something a bit more practical about why we have these military exercises. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? The use of uh, military exercises uh, is, is multi-layered. Um, it's because... Uh, all militaries need to rehearse what they do. They need to train with allies to see that they can communicate with them, that they've got tactical and strategic concepts that they all agree to and that they can all work within and, and use. And also that they're on the on the ground level, that they get on with each other and they understand each other. They can communicate with each other. So whoever it is, whether it's NATO with the, the massive exercise they, they did last year called Trident Juncture uh, around Norway and in the high north in the Arctic and around there or the russians who staged a massive exercise called vostok which stretched from you know the north um in, in russia with the northern fleet all the way across uh russia with the the ground forces to the pacific so they did the same thing they they wanted to make and that did involve a small number of chinese forces to make sure that they can all operate together so there's that there's the practical element of it but of course trident juncture and uh, russia's vostok exercises and in in korea the south korean and american exercises versus whatever north korea does in terms of exercises have a a a message in terms of deterrence to a potential foe and showing that um a country is is being properly protected and that if anybody tries any aggression then it will be dealt with so there's that level as well so definitely um they are used to send messages and in korea I think the, the, the messaging is even more important um, to reassure the people of South Korea with those exercises that the South Korean armed forces and the American forces, they are ready to deter any na- uh, uh, North Korean attack. And also, um, when it comes to the North Koreans, they want to show with their demonstrations of firepower on the coast or big uh, exercises inland that they are ready to see off the uh, the threat from what they see as the threat from America and, and also South Korea. So there's different levels. But all military units rehearse all the time on, on a, a low level and a high level to, to be ready to do uh, their job if they need to. Yeah. And am I right, the frequency of them reflects just personnel change because every couple of years, obviously, a new crop of people are now in the military and they have to be acquainted with how things work. Is that right? Well, that will be part of it. But I think um, definitely uh, when governments, uh, let's say NATO, get together um, and discuss um, uh, what they want to do and via the North Atlantic Council, which is the the representatives of various nations, the political representatives, discuss worries about a potential threat mm. somewhere, then NATO will respond by putting in, um, in, in effect uh, a plan for an exercise, let's say in the Black Sea, yeah. with um, Turkish, American, British, other warships, including the French, going into the Black Sea for a certain short period to exercise with the Romanians and the Bulgarians uh, to show... Uh, Russia, that NATO is standing by those, those allies, and that's when there's periods of high tension. And similarly, you know, elsewhere in the world, like the Baltic, then um, NATO will send ground forces, air forces, and sea forces to regularly exercise and carry out patrols in response to a perceived uh, concern about the Russian threat. 
Excellent. Thank you, Ian. Um, are there, is there anything else you'd like to mention before we wrap up? Have you got any other final thoughts just based on the themes of what we've been discussing today or if there's anything that we may have missed that's important to you? I think the the um, the thing about, uh, from my narrow point of view, uh, which is the naval side, you might say, is that it's incredible how 20 years ago when I started uh, my magazine off, the re- really only uh, hotspot that was really vexing the world was, let's say, Saddam Hussein and how to contain him. Mm. Um, and that was really the only hot area. But over 20 years, the, the naval expansion and the arms race in all over the world virtually has uh, gathered pace. And there are now multiple areas of concern and multiple potential flashpoints. And it's just incredibly complex. And the issues at stake have grown more and more uh, dangerous and important. So now we're we're in a radically different era, and I sometimes think that uh, nations in the West, in Europe, are not quite uh, alive to the uh, the way in which things can go wrong rapidly, and and the lack of uh, certainly naval capabilities across the board in Europe uh, that mean that they're at a disadvantage. Because it's popular for people to deride the Russians and say, oh, their warships need a tugboat and, you know, they can't operate properly and blah, blah, blah. But actually, the Russians, in their own little way, have adopted a means of uh, modestly um, upgrading their surface combatants and putting to sea more diesel submarines and building nuclear submarines and have focused on areas where they can apply maximum deterrent uh, pressure on the West and also operational capabilities such as firing cruise missiles into Syria when they feel they have interest there. So people should never dismiss the Russians, but they also should be aware that it's going to be a long way before Russia on its own can rival NATO with America. But were were America to leave uh, NATO and were America to withdraw certain capabilities from NATO, then that's when uh, we'd have real problems because there are certain capabilities within NATO that only America provides and high-end capabilities and also critical mass in terms of submarines and warships to conduct patrols and deter people like the Russians. So, you know, NATO nations need to consider, you know, what they should do in the next five or ten years to safeguard themselves as well as just relying on on the Americans. Mm. I mean, I know there's been a... Since Trump came to the presidency, there's certainly been a debate about whether America wants to pull out of NATO. And certainly in the UK, if Jeremy Corbyn were to become the prime minister, he's certainly a critic of NATO. Um, so it does create this sort of political instability, certainly in Britain and America. Um, and if either of us were to, well, more of America were to pull out of NATO, as you're saying, it's, uh, that would make a massive difference for Russia. Yeah, for the, U- for the USA to withdraw from NATO and NATO to collapse into um, confusion because it doesn't know what to do without its leading player and for then the rival European army and everything else to try and stand up would be a huge achievement uh, for Russia because if it, if it could see the Western defence alliance and system collapse into confusion and uh, uh, almost anarchy and, and indecision uh, and lose those high-end capabilities that mean that, is, that NATO is uh, a, a major deterrent to any any aggressive action by Russia elsewhere, such as the Baltics, mm. then that would be the greatest achievement that Vladimir Putin has ever pulled off. And they would feel that that is revenge 
for um, the way Russia was treated mm. uh, when the Cold War ended, because they think that it wasn't treated with respect, and also uh, be revenged for what it's what the Russians see as, as an unwise expansion to the east, which of course is only uh, former Warsaw Pact countries expressing their own desires. But you know that the collapse of NATO and taking away that guarantee of security would, as far as Russia is concerned, be the greatest achievement and greatest victory it's achieved um, since probably the end of the Second World War. Mm. And well, how likely do you think it is America is to pull out of NATO? You know, it's hard to know mm. with their politics being so un- unpredictable these days. You don't yeah. know, do you? Yeah. You stand and you look and every every day there's something quite incredible happening. But I cannot really conceive that the US military and the more um, sober heads um, in uh, in America would, would ever want to pull America out of NATO. I mean, it's uh, it would be such a a mad thing to happen um, that you, you just think, well, surely that could never be allowed to happen. Um, but we live in very uncertain times. We do indeed. We do indeed. But uh, <laughs> well, there we go. Well, look, Ian, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? Well, my website is uh, ianballantine.com and uh, the magazine is on warshipsifr.com. And of course, I'm bound to do this, but you know, my book's out there on Amazon and in Waterstones and other bookshops. And in, it's also got an American edition that's just come out uh, with a different name. In the UK, it's called The Deadly Trade. In the USA, it's called The Deadly Deep. So if people want to go out there and uh, have a look at it and invest in it, and that'll keep me writing books and keep me gainfully employed. But the magazine itself celebrated uh, 20 years last year. And uh, we're now moving into the 21st. And it's as hectic as ever. So I'm trying to keep abreast of naval events, trying my best. Yeah, well, well, well done for twenty years. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, we've uh, we've ducked and dived, and uh, certainly everything's become a lot more complex. And uh, thanks for asking me to come on and talk about it. And uh, I don't know everything, but I hope I've given you a little bit of information. Oh no, you, you have. You've been brilliant. You've been brilliant. And actually, I mean, it's funny because um, you know these kind of questions that we're, we're these discussions we're having. A lot of people are asking these questions at the moment, and um, especially about the China and its islands and those kind of things. There isn't much out there should we say, um, outside of specialist material where people really talk about it. So I'm, I'm glad I've got somebody I could talk to about it because I think it's yeah. something that we all should yeah. be aware of. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the big challenge with naval stuff is that um, people kind of defeat themselves before they start because uh, these days not that many people work at sea or know much about the sea mm. and uh, for all their, their strength and expansion, navies don't have as the imp- imprint ashore that they used to have. So I guess it can be very confusing and very complex and hard to understand. Mm. But I think the job for you and me, and you know, whether it's writing uh, magazines, doing podcasts, or writing books, is to try and explain it in a simple way. And I think it needs to be, because I think there are big issues out there mm. and dangerous things happening. Well, this is it. And I think, you know, um, with the political side, um, it's it's very important that people, the public are aware of the complexity of the world, because at the moment, there seems to be a rise in politics where people aren't so informed and they're making very rash decisions that, like with if America were to withdraw from NATO, they have a massive consequence that will affect future generations. Absolutely. No, no, it would have a... Uh, an absolutely vast and serious impact on so many aspects of life and that's what people don't understand it's not just a military thing Mm. it'd be a political and diplomatic thing and it would have an economic impact as well i mean it would have a huge impact if it happened and Mm. the same goes for you know if there ever was a clash of arms in the south china sea it would just impact so many levels of um, 
everybody's lives around the world. You know, it wouldn't just be restricted to what happens out there. It would, ha- you know, it would affect everybody around the world. Definitely. Well, let's hope it doesn't happen and wiser heads prevail. But, exactly. <laughs> but thank you so much, Ian, for for joining me today, and um, and I look forward to our chat in a few weeks about the deadly trade as well. So okay, brilliant. Um, that's great. Yeah. And what's um, just quickly with your mag- latest magazine? So when's Warships out? Well, the latest edition is out on the. Uh, in fact, it's out at the end of this week. So you're talking the 25th of January. That's the official um, date when it comes out. But it starts rolling out. Actually, it started rolling out uh, at the beginning of this week when we're talking. So, But the official uh, publication date is January the 25th. And then after being out in the UK, and you can buy it in uh, WH Smiths and elsewhere, and subscribers get it, it will then be distributed to the markets around the world. So it's uh, the edition is out. And um, it's going to hit the streets and hit the shops and uh, has on its cover this time uh, the Royal Navy's Ice Patrol ship. But we've got a look at Japan's jump jet carrier plans and then uh, various other issues. We've got a book special in there of something that considers the expansion of the Algerian Navy, French future carriers. You know, it's very busy as ever. Excellent. And the January edition, which is what I've got with me at the moment, is covering China's one-shot ship killer, which I managed to yeah, say properly but- this time. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's an old edition. The one, yeah. the one that comes out uh, January the 25th here, uh, or, or is about to come out in the UK and then roll out elsewhere around the world, is the February edition. Mm. So they should look out for February on the front cover. And the red vessel, the red vessel in uh, Arctic, sorry, Antarctic, not Arctic, surrounding called uh, HMS Protector. She's the cover star. Brilliant, brilliant. And people can find that in WH Smith's. Yeah, uh, yeah, in the UK and elsewhere. And, and elsewhere. They can. Um, also visit the website and subscribe if they like, which we love. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Well, Ian, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening. This is Need to Know.